0: Hi guys, I'm Alistair Stewart, I'm the editor of Darrow, and I'm going to be speaking today to Cameron Mackay on the various geographical and environmental issues of the day. Cameron, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Cameron, I know this is going to be one of these ridiculously big issues that I, I, I do want to sink my teeth into with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself, and tell me what it is that drives your passion for it is that you're doing just now.
1: Well, I'm a third year undergraduate at the University of Glasgow studying uh, geography. And I've been fortunate enough to get out and get into some pretty remote areas over the last few years, such as the Himalayas and Greenland. And when I've been there, what's always struck me is the, um, the way people are being impacted by climate change. And I think it, what the really interesting thing is, is the way that people in remote indigenous communities are being impacted, because I think they're the first demographic of people that will be severely affected by climate change to the point of having to relocate to the point of their human rights being affected by it. So that's the kind of driver I've had to, A, look at ways that we can um, mitigate the issues on them, but also look at the ways we can share their story and engage more people with it. So that's the kind of driver I have for the work I do.
0: Human rights is an interesting one, Cameron. Let me ask you on that. Do you think, and again, this is a very broad question, do you think environmental security
1: and the implications of environmental change should be considered as a human rights issue? Um, I I definitely think so, um, because it's, it's something that will affect so many people. And I think, To call it a human rights issue is something that will engage with the kind of political leaders in a way that, in a way that, I suppose, inspires faster action. And what I think is very interesting is that there's a community in the Arctic, in northern Alaska, um, and the kind of circumpolar um, Inuit Council, which um, kind of governs all the remote areas there, has said, released a statement saying um, that the human rights of the Inupiat people in northern Alaska are threatened directly by climate change. So this is something that's definitely uh, happening now. And I think, yeah, I, I think it's important that we bring that into the discussion in that way. And I think that's what would kind of inspire the best action.
0: So what do you say to people that are, are very much take the position that we're going through a period of, of great austerity, that you've got people in, say, the UK, for example, who can't afford to feed themselves, can't afford to keep a roof over themselves, and you're calling for government action to... Well, what is it? What, what is the goal of government action with environmental change? Because I think, and I don't speak for myself, but I do speak for a body of voices that don't seem to ever disappear, that think that environmental change is an inevitability. That we're talking uh-huh. about a, a, a one-degree increase or a two-degree increase that they just think it's going to happen anyway. So what difference does it make and what should be done now? What can realistically be done now? to avert the kind of catastrophe
1: that you're talking about with environmental change okay well I think it's a very simple answer I think it's just mindsets you know if you take any climate change issue I don't think the cause is pollutions I don't think it's political policy I think it's the individual mindsets that go into releasing those pollutants or creating a political policy so I think if there's any kind of governmental goal is that we have a a country full of people that have the mindset that we need to do all we can to act on climate change responsibly and you know i think that that, that can be done in several ways we've got communication and, and i think policy is a very valid uh, way of doing that and if we i mean the whole thing is to keep you know temperature below well 2 degrees but whether or not that's a good target i don't know but i, I think you know in terms of the what governments can be doing it's education education of the current workforce but primarily education of uh, people in schools and primary and secondary edu- and higher education, so that we know that no matter what happens now, in future, uh, we have a workforce that has been been well-educated. But I think, you know, what I was gonna say about, you know, you're talking about people in the UK are, are in poverty and things, why should we be focusing on something else? I, I think the answer to that is, and the answer to a lot of climate change things is isn't no matter what the issue is, climate change will threaten it in future. You know, if we don't act on climate change now, people will be in much greater poverty because we'll have much less land area to deal with, we'll have been a much harsher climate, so the people in po- poverty now will be in a much worse uh, condition and will be much more uh, economically stretched to deal with them. So I think, you know, it, it it's every issue to act on climate change now.
0: I'm sorry to disappoint our listeners, but I have to confess that I am of a particular age at the, the grand old number of 28. And even... At 28, I still get the distinct impression that environmental issues are a sort of fringe area of policy, that it's mm-hmm. got its foot more in the door of people considering it and taking it seriously. If I'm saying that at 28, what I, what I hope our listeners agree is a young age. Do you think that the current crop of politicians and media moguls and people who are in a la- later stage of life, do you think that they know it's a write-off for their generation? That they don't really want to have to take the difficult decisions with funding and education, as you say, and ampro- uh, and, and, and encouraging massive lifestyle mm-hmm. changes. Do you think that they don't want to take the big decisions because they know that by the time that you know, the, the, the impact of those changes have come in, that they simply won't be alive?
1: Well, I mean, I, I can't really speak for the, the, the demographic myself. But what I think is that, you know, I certainly hope that that's not the case. But, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, they've been brought up. And and I think, you know, it all comes down to our upbringings to an, a certain extent. Of course, that can change. But, you know, we have to accept that that's, you know, going to be responsible for all of our actions. And people who will have brought, been brought up in, in a, in a um, kind of society that environmental education isn't a priority, so uh, you can completely understand that they wouldn't act on it. And I think, you know, that's totally fine. People have contributed so much to society to make society good not contributing much to the environmental side of it is absolutely uh, no bad thing. But I think, you know, what what the hope is with with the kind of generation is that the people in power, the people that have influence, you can only hope that they're taking the correct advice and they have the right mindset to imply certain climate change and environmental ideas and projects that will allow the the new education and the new kind of workforce that's currently, you know, a younger audience to engage with it in a certain way. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I... I don't think that the entire older population is um not on side because some of the most prominent figures um if you look at the scientific community people like um James Hansen, who's done a huge amount of kind of climate change communication. And you look at the kind of media side, like people like James Baylog and Chasing Ice, who've done a huge amount of uh, media communication. And you look in politics, you've got Al Gore and Barack Obama, who are doing incredibly um, positive things and have a huge influence. These are all people that I guess are in the kind of the the second half of their career, or the kind of, you could call them the kind of older generation. So, yeah, I think they're all the prominent figures. But as a whole, I don't think that that demographic will be as engaged as the younger one just now. What do you
0: think is more important to getting the kind of education change that you want to see? Do you think it's about top-down government heavy policies, regulation and in some cases taxation as it is with airlines? Or do you think mm-hmm. it begins very much in the home with waste management and recycling? What do you think would have more of an immediate effect?
1: Well, before, the first thing, I mean, it's such a, a non-answer, but I think we've got to have both. You've got lead, the kind of big political leaders and the big kind of policies have to set an example that we're doing something about it. But also, we've got to hit the home because one without the other is meaningless. But, you know, to come back to the point I was saying earlier, it's about individual mindsets. I think if we had one thing, it, it is the home and it, it is a sustainable lifestyle because that's where it starts and that's where these mindsets can grow. And I think, you know, in terms of... Um, the way that people can engage its uh, the way I see it right now is that we're the scientific and kind of media communities are just keep giving the same figures the same papers and things and it's I think if people haven't engaged with that yet they're not going to engage with anything else because the same thing is coming out again and again so I think if we want to you know really get people in the home on side we've got to think of more kind of Engaging artistic ways to communicate with people. I say emotive, but I use it very carefully because with emotive can come bias. But a very, you know, an honest um, communication of these issues that is emotive in a certain way, but also is very a very honest um, way of doing it. And I think that through, comes through bringing people that create policy, bringing the scientists, and bringing artistic, creative people together. And I think that's what could um, benefit people in the home, but also in the, the bigger policies too. You've- You've mentioned, uh, that's very interesting to me, you've mentioned artistic
0: as a way of Mm -hmm. reaching out to people and transforming the way people view uh, environmental issues. Do you think, conversely, that artistic efforts in the last, say, 15 years to engage with environmental issues, I've actually turned people off to it because they view it as the realm of science fiction and fantasy. I'm naming, I'm thinking of particularly films like *The Day After Tomorrow*, big environmental okay. films, big fictitious pieces that are so ridiculous. Even recently, a film *San Andreas* with uh, I believe I believe it was *The Rock* that was in it, some yeah. fault line in America and uh, uh, inevitable disaster and rescue attempts. And the Hulk looking, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, doing his doing his thing. Yeah. Do you think that that has confined these issues to the realm of of, of ridiculousness in people's minds? Because well, to me, over Christmas, we had all those terrible floods in the UK, that weather patterns are becoming more uh, strange and fluctuating, yet no one seems to call it global warming. No one seems to call it this is an environmental emergency anymore.
1: Do you think there's yeah. two
0: different ways of thinking about this, the real and the not real?
1: That can't happen Absolutely. to us, surely. I think that's a really interesting way of putting it, the real and the not real. And you, you do have the kind of, I think we need to separate the two. And I think artistic uh, methods can have a place in both the not real in terms of films. I think we've got to just draw a line there. And I think there's a lot of things you could take them. For example, um, if you look at The Reverend, the recently Leonardo DiCaprio film, there's a lot of good messages to come out of that in terms of like, indigenous populations and, and accurate representations and supporting them. Um, you, you need to just be very careful what you take. And I won't go into a conversation about how geologically inaccurate San Andreas is, because that's a different conversation. But like, I think you're, you're right, because um, I, I think things like The Day After Tomorrow is a good example, uh, because it's very fictitious. But I, I, I think you've got to just hope that people consuming these medias are intelligent enough to be able to draw the line between the two. Oh, Cameron, like, that's, a, that's a very bold wish. <laughs> very bold wish. Well, Fair, and I think you know it comes down to the kind of the other side of it, which is the kind of non-fiction, the kind of keeping me, like artistic things in the real. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned James Bialik a film that I think was really, really a fantastic leader in this kind of thing. Was a film called Chasing Ice. It was one of the most artistically emotive pieces of media I've seen about climate change. Um, yeah, it was still completely within the real. It was a documentary film, and I think that kind of thing. And that broke its way into kind of nearly kind of mainstream uh, cinema. And I think in some places it did, definitely in America, maybe not the UK as much. But I think, you know, yes, to answer your question, the films and, and kind of Hollywood productions are potentially quite damaging in the way we think about environment because you can't pull the two apart and then you see a film like 2012 and just think that's never going to happen. Um, but, you know, I think the kind of solution or a way forward in that is to really promote and invest in these... Uh, artistic documentaries, things that can take a scientific issue, um, add music, add art to it that can really engage an audience and communicate that to the masses in a way that is as engaging as your Hollywood blockbuster um, through the pr- like product- adding production value to it, but also is at heart so scientifically accurate and s- the message is very um, close to what we need to get uh, across the board.
0: If we have that kind of change that we're talking about and if we have that kind of like campaigns to deal with poverty or to deal with a particular single issue, what is it that if I, re- if I see something very emotive in, a, in uh-huh. a video raising awareness and I reach into my wallet to bring out a credit card to make a donation, what is it that you want that money to be put towards? And I suppose it goes back to my earlier question. What is the big, if we're talk, I feel very much like Donald Rumsfeld now with a real and not real quote, which is going to haunt me for the rest of time, I imagine. <laughs> but if we're talking about tangible change, real prevention, what is it that's the, the, the best way to do that? Is it big macro policies? Here's enough money to finish the sentence, do what? Or here's a lifestyle change, here's money to finish the sentence. What do you think?
1: Well, I think from my perspective, I'd I'd say education. I mean, you know, I think all the resources are there for any political decision or any policy decision to go either way in a way that supports environmental issues, 100% or 0%. I think the money just needs to go into education because I, I think the, the, the thing is um, with that, if you take... You know, take campaigns and things to, to try and change uh, policy or try and stop people drilling in a certain area or try and um, promote a, a bigger environmental project to come into place. A policy for that, it will generate a public following, but it will, it, the, the result will be one policy change, one single policy change in 2016 that might be gone by 2017. I think it's, not to call it unsustainable, but I think a more sustainable option is to invest money in education, both in a way that education the current young people, but also set up infrastructure for education to be repeated year after year, and I think that is a much more sustainable and in return, and to talk about kind of return of investment, that's what's going to get you a much bigger return. And I think, you know, policy and things now, yeah, you, you, of course, need to be investing in that. And you can, if we invested in one thing, we would be completely unbalanced. But, you know, it, it, you would, and that's my perspective. So I think what's important is that there are people that have my perspective, but there's also people that have different perspectives. And when we come together, that's when you do get a bit of a, more of a broader, across so the board. So there's more, there's much
0: more of an interdisciplinary connection. I
1: think, I think that's the key word. I mean, if you look at the big scientific papers, these big studies done, Across everywhere in academia, there's been called for interdisciplinary action, which unfortunately is quite ironic because it's not what the kind of main trend in academia is just now. But I think that's it. You know, um, if we can partner, um, you know, climatology with human science, with political science and engineering, with both creative media, the output of that project is one that is both going to set up a fantastic in- infrastructure, but also engage with the population and inspire change. And I think that's, I mean, well, I think, you know, it, it should always be invested in that. And I suppose education, I do mean in a broad sense, which both filters down to primary education to your, like, seven-year-old learning about um, the Arctic for the first time to your senior university professor leading an interdisciplinary research project. but uh, And I, I think that's where it could be. But we need to... I, I think an important thing in that, you know, with you talking about money going to universities, is that I think that the people giving the monies need to put more... Um, Requirements for outreach and communication, because I don't. I right now I think that is the biggest failing of that's a big statement. But I we've, think, yeah, I...
0: we've spoken quite a bit about domestic politics. I think, mm-hmm. I'm, I, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we both agree that there also there has to be a, 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 has to be for any success, uh, a multinational effort to tackle climate change. Yeah, I was reading the other day and I, I remembered it. Uh, the presidency of george w Bush where and he wasn 't the only president to do it, so if i 'm uh, zeitgeisting a little bit, I apologize, uh-huh. but American funding in exchange for uh, not teaching about contraception or or etc and so forth mm-hmm. that you 'll give money for one international aid budget with a list of caveats that are not so much not doing something but also doing something, and it usually uh, scatters into and touches on uh, moral but, issues as well. How much of a connection do you think there should be between, Britain's obviously got a sizeable overseas aid budget uh-huh. uh, that's fixed in by David Cameron, Prime Minister David yeah. Cameron. How much of that do you think would be, recipients of that should be, right, we're going to give you X amount of money, but you have to have a strong, recognised syllabus for raising your children and raising young people in receipt of this aid about climate issues. Do you think it should be securitized in that way?
1: I think in some ways, yes. Um, I think, you know, what's very dangerous, if, you know, say like the UK funding going to that, is that one country is telling another what to do. I I think this is when platforms such as the International Policy on Climate Change, the United Nations, all these, you know, climate conferences that have happened and are yet to happen, I think these are a much more stable kind of source for that those kind of legislations to come from. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the thing is you, you can't attach, I mean, from my perspective, from what I know, I'm sure there's a lot of other perspectives out there, but if you attach such strict guidelines onto funding, you don't know that they're going to be taken that way. I mean, the kind of, unfortunately, the countries that, you know, require aid are also countries that have quite high levels of corruption. And it'd be very naive to just say, yeah, we need to just tell countries to give yeah. very good guidelines and just yeah. expect that to happen. I think, you know, it, you can't walk away. And I think, you know... A good example of that um, is that you know if you you need to stay involved for a long time, um, a lot of issues now in Nepal, you know, recipient of a lot of international aid with the earth, earthquake. Um, as soon as things started to get better, those aid sources left, and now we're left with a country that is still in just as bad a position as it was. Um, but people leave thinking they've done a good job. But I think you know if. if if you you know you want to get if you're in international aid, I see the kind of the success being staying with them until the end. I mean, I don't think in any of our lifetimes, any current issue that's receiving international aid is going to be solved. So if any one project or influence is going to work. I think it needs to stay until you know for the rest of our lives, as essentially.
0: I get the distinct impression from what you've been saying today, Cameron. That education is everything. I understand mm-hmm. that you've been trying to establish a platform called Explorer Stories. Tell me about that.
1: Yes. Well, basically, Explorer Stories as it kind of has two sides to it. It aims to be an an online open source environmental media platform for education and public outreach and the idea behind it is to create these kind of emotive stories and these kind of scientifically um, accurate education packs and films um, for both people in education and and the general public but the the kind of main thing behind it is it's youth driven and it's also something that anyone can get involved with. I think you know that what's been done great so far in the kind of Education side of things is that people have made some really interesting packs. But these packs come from a very kind of established corporate side of things. You've got, you know, your David Attenborough's giving information out, which is incredible. Um, but what I think the kind of the gap in the, the market here is, or not the market, the gap in the issue, is for a young person seeing something, I think what could have the biggest impact if they, if they see it and think, oh, how can I get involved? What's my role in this. And I think through seeing young people or their peers presenting from the Arctic, presenting from the Himalayas about climate change, A, it's much more engaging, gets the message across. But then also about Explorer Stories, what it is, is, is production support for any young person going overseas or doing research to turn their own experiences into medias that are shared with Explorer Stories as well. So it's a way for anyone to get involved. Say you're going on a, a kind of a volunteering trip to Africa, you get in touch with us. we will support you through taking camera equipment, through Sharing your resources and explore stories as a kind of community that aims to be the place to, to bring people in and give them our audience of communication partners to, to share their work too.
0: Well, that sounds wonderful. Am I correct in saying that you also run a blog too?
1: Um, yes, I am um, not too too established, but I, I do um, have a blog section on um, a website of my own. But it's it's more of a kind of platform for the work that we've done. Um, but. I think you know what I'd hope to happen is to, with the kind of blog side of things is to bring it into Explorer Stories and make that a way to get uh, young people sharing their both ideas about the environment. So but getting also real
0: stories out there that people have uh, their own experiences, making a, injecting a human element into this. Issue. Well, that's it,
1: and it's to kind of make it a little less agended, a little less you know, just personal objectives behind it. You know, I think one brilliant thing about you know people with an education, the younger people, is that you know it's a very much say what you see kind of thing you know, we were dig a project in Greenland and what we were, you know, we were presenting and the guys on the team were saying, this is a glacier, this is what we've seen here. Um, there's no kind of assumed connection or corporate interest. And I think with the young people, they have an incredible power to be able to, um, you know, communicate very accurate scientific facts, but also do it in a very honest and way that, that, you know, doesn't have the kind of agenda barriers that you can get in a lot of the kind of, Scientific work, where you're always saying, "Who is this? What is their objective? Who are they linked to?" And I think that's the kind of real power young people have, and it's something that I think, for me personally, I'd like to really get the most out of before I become too connected in any kind of particular institution. Um, so I, I really think that the kind of there's a lot more opportunity for young people and from young people that can be monopolised on.
0: Well. Explorer Stories is something that Darrow is absolutely delighted to support. To learn Uh more about it, please have a look at www.explorerstories.org. That's for the audience there, Cameron. I imagine you already know what the web address for it is. (laughs) Um, Cameron, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I know that our uh, listeners will enjoy it too. Cameron writes regularly for Darrow. Um, to read more of his articles that he's posted on the site, please click the link below. Uh, Cameron, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much.